Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnall, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Stay Flexi has become a viral sensation in the flexibility world, dispelling common stretching myths and stating facts. Movement by David will simplify stretching so you can gain flexibility, move better, and feel fantastic. What's the fastest way to get flexible? You, you pick a skill or you pick an exercise. Um, a bodybuilder would like pick an exercise, like say a single leg hamstring stretch, and you would just hold that for 30 seconds. That's one set. And you would do that for multiple sets. And the goal would be around 10 sets a week. And that would be probably the fastest way to gain flexibility. But if you wanted it to be a stronger type of flexibility, so you're not like a wet noodle, um, half of that should be an active stretch of some kind. Okay, because I feel for the person who's new to flexibility, they think it's just static stretching. Like uh, someone gets introduced to a sporting team, it's throw your leg up on the side of the fence, stretch your hamstring. So how would an active stretch look different from a, a static stretch? It's a good question. So for let's just take the hamstring for an example. You want to find a way to put some load into it um, some weight, either gravity or a dumbbell. Um, let's say if you keep your back perfectly flat, you're standing tall and you hold two dumbbells and you lean forward, you're going to feel a pretty big stretch in the hamstring. And if you go too far, it might hurt. So your hamstrings are going to have to flex to fight gravity, bringing you all the way down to the ground. That fighting that you're doing with the flexion of the, the, the activation of the muscle, it's, it's an active stretch that way. So you're actually getting the muscle recruited and involved. What are the advantages of doing the active stretching versus your purely passive type? Passive flexibility is is something that just increases your range of motion, um, but it doesn't do much for strengthening. So if you're to do an active stretch, it's going to give you the dual benefit of a little bit of strengthening and an increase in your range of motion. The caveat is that if you do an active stretch every single time, you're going to hit a barrier pretty quick because it's kind of harder to recover from an active stretch. Okay. So primarily people should be doing their active stretches in their routines to get flexible. How would they, and why should they introduce the static passive stuff? So if you're really sore, bringing in a bunch of active stretches, it's almost like doing an eccentric exercise. When you do an eccentric exercise, that makes you really, really sore because it tears everything. It just puts a lot of strain on the muscle. Same thing with an active stretch. So if you're sore, it's probably not a good idea to start doing some more active stretches. It's probably better to just do the passive stretches instead. You're quite known for this term called microdosing mobility. And I would say that that is linked with introducing movement and stretching into your daily life. Do you have any strategies that people can use to make flexibility and stretching a part of their life instead of some dedicated practice? Yeah, one of my favorite stretches, I used to work at a desk job. So I was sitting at a desk all day and I just wanted to start stretching. Uh, so like the easiest way that you could think of that is just putting your ankle over the top of your knee and leaning forward. It's a figure four stretch. You'll feel it in your glute, more specifically your piriformis. And you could do that in the middle of working. So that would be a mobility microdose. Uh, another way you could look at it is if you're going to the grocery store, there's something on the bottom shelf that you wanted to get instead of bending over to get it, or you could bend over to get it and focus on your hamstrings. But I like to always do a deep squat, go as far down as I can. And I'm uh, basically just getting XP, which is something that the all fours guy on TikTok would do. Nathaniel, love that guy. For sure. I think that if you can find some way to make it part of what you're doing in your life, it becomes second nature and you build on that range of motion. Another example I really like is it's pretty easy for people to get a doorway pull-up bar or have access to it in their house. And what I used to do to accumulate time hanging, so it's great for opening up the shoulders, the thoracic spine, you know, if you've been sitting, studying, working. Every time I went to the toilet, right past my toilet is a pull-up bar. So I just hang for like 30 to 60 seconds. If you at home most of your day, bam, you've got like five minutes hanging accumulated. That's beautiful. Five minutes is a lot more time than anybody ever dedicates to, to like a dead hang. I used to dead hang all the time because I was a climber. I was really into climbing. 
So any chance I could get for like hanging or like getting some grip strength training, I would, I would microdose it just like that. So I love that example. Just say the person listening and watching this is someone who's mainly interested in resistance training. Their focus 80% of the time is to get stronger, build muscle, but they're curious about this flexibility stuff. They want to put it in there, but they don't want it to be a focus of their routine. How would you incorporate stretching into their split? Just say they're going to the gym three to five times a week. Would you put it before the session, during, afterwards? There, there's an argument that you could do all three of those. Um, it, like For instance, if you're going to do squats that day and your range of motion is just not that great, um, some static stretching before you do squats, that's a great way to get some mobility in. Or if you already have a little bit of that mobility, putting the weight on the bar and just getting into your working set and going all the way down. So in the middle of your workout, you can do it. Um, there's also something called intraset static stretching, um, which is really, really uh, helpful. What you would do is you would pick an antagonist muscle. So let's say, again, we're taking the squat example. You're doing your heavyweight squats or middleweight, doesn't really matter. In between, when you're resting, you can stretch your hamstrings and it's not going to impact your squat whatsoever and you're building in that flexibility. My preferred way to do it is to do it at the end of the workout. But like I said, I do 10 sets a week of the stretches that I do do. So it's kind of like a whole nother workout. I think that's a great idea that antagonist stretching because it won't impede what you're doing with your prime movers but what about the people that would be a bit hesitant to stretch prior to training because there's an idea out there that if i stretch before i train it's going to reduce my power and also my strength stretching before you work out can definitely impact your workout performance but you would have to stretch for a pretty long time for that effect to take place for me, I'm somebody who's never stretched or held a stretch for longer than 60 seconds, really. I just, I don't find the utility in it. It's boring. Um, so for me, I don't have to avoid static stretching before I work out because the most I'm going to do is 30 seconds, maybe twice. But if you're somebody that's really, really worried about it, just do it at the end and it won't matter. So For sure. And the research backs up what you said about the myth of static stretching prior to training causing hindrance because those studies were done on extremely long duration stretches like you said who's going to be stretching for five minutes plus that was immediately followed by the exercise they're going to do so if you do some static stretches and then say 10 15 minutes later the impact on your performance will be negligible but the range of motion gains will facilitate increased range in your training yeah, you could even stretch before you, like if the gym is far away from you, like 15 minutes away, which isn't really that far, but you could stretch while at home, get in the car, get to the gym, and then start your regular warm up of whatever you're going to do and get to work. And it's not going to have any effect on your workout unless you stretch for, like you said, five minutes at a time. But usually those effects of increased, uh, or sorry, decreased workout performance only for around 30 to 40 minutes after you do that really high intensity long form stretching anyway so if, if you give yourself some rest time it won't matter you've mentioned now that you do around 10 sets of stretching per week what is the minimum effective dose in terms of sets hold times could you give us a guideline to get flexible with a minimum effective dose the studies say it needs to be 10 sets but if you're somebody who's like me you could get away with a lot less than that. If, if, if you're work, like, let's say you wanted to stretch seven days a week, that's every single day, but you only had time to do 30 seconds. So you just do your 30 second hamstring stretch every single day of the week. That, uh, that comes out to three and a half minutes at the end of the week, which is not quite five minutes, which is what you want for the minimum effective dose. But if you incorporate the microdosing principles, you're easily getting that five minutes. So five minutes is, is the minimum effective dose. And what that would break down to is uh, 10 sets per muscle group um, per week. The studies that, that, uh, that found that had it spread out across five days. That's the way they did it. But I've had luck just doing it two days a week and doing five sets. So I, I guess it's really up to preference, but the minimum effective dose is somewhere close to 10 sets 
You could do more if you wanted to, or you could do less. That's interesting, David, because the misconception I believe people have with stretching is they need to do a lot of it and they have to do it every single day. So what you just suggested, it's more about the volume that you accumulate in a week. You could spread it or you can do it in a few sessions. But an idea I'd like to present to you is I believe the intensity of the stretch is quite important because I look around the average person stretching and the effort is quite low. They don't look like they're going through any real form of discomfort. And from my perspective, everything else equal, they're holding it for the same time, same amount of sets per week. If the effort is low, I think that's a main reason people aren't getting more flexible. That's an extremely good point. I always forget to mention that because I always just think that people are doing the stretch correctly. Because if you are doing the stretch correctly, then of course the 10 sets are going to work. But if you're not, 10 sets, is it's just junk volume. You're not actually getting something done. But you, you need to be at a, a sufficient enough atten- intensity that it's uncomfortable. Not quite painful, but it needs to be definitely uncomfortable. And some stretches are definitely more uncomfortable than others. Um, and sometimes you might find that uh, some stretches are super, super easy and they aren't even that uncomfortable. There definitely needs to be a high degree of intensity. What are the signs and symptoms that you're looking for that would give someone confidence that they are stretching with sufficient intensity? If you can't hold a stretch for 60 seconds, you're probably stretching at, a, at the correct intensity. If, you, if you're like out of breath and like, oh, I really just need to get out of the stretch by the time you hit 30 seconds, that's, you basically did the bodybuilding equivalent to hitting failure. So you, you're, it's neurological failure, you're, it's too much. That being said, some people have a really high pain tolerance and they can really injure themselves or you have connective tissue disorder. There's a whole bunch of other stuff and you just have to take this with a grain of salt. But if you're really just itching to get out of that stretch by the time 30 seconds hits, then you're doing it right. What should give people confidence if they're new to stretching is your stretch tolerance improves over time. I feel that if people are unfamiliar to stretching, they try it for the first time, super uncomfortable, they hold their breath, it's, it's very like traumatic in a sense to the body, but they don't realize if you stick at it, you'll improve your pain tolerance and also stretch tolerance to that stimulus. Yeah, you, your pain tolerance really does go up and your stretch tolerance does go, go up the more you do it. And it, it's almost like for, for, for the gym language, it's newbie gains. Um, like everybody likes to say that stretching doesn't even impact your muscles or nothing gets longer. It's just neurological. That that's correct for the first like month or two or three. It's, it's newbie gains. Those are the free gains, the low hanging fruit. You could probably do two sets of 30 seconds a week and find those newbie gains. If you just stayed really, really consistent and at a sufficient enough intensity. I like that parallel you just drew with say strength training and stretching. So with strength training, the beginning is neurological gains. Depending on your style of training, over time, you'll get those muscular adaptations through hypertrophy. Same thing with stretching. You'll get that tolerance improving initially, neurological, and then over time with habitual stretching, you'll get more, would you say, morphological changes to the tissues, right? Yeah. So there's some studies, mostly on eccentric training, that show that you, you experience hypertrophy, but if you take eccentric training to the maximum, like if you're doing Nordic curls where you're like really shortening the muscle and going to a really long position that's really, really tight, that your average sarcomere, which is the, the smallest building block of your muscle that actually contracts and, and causes the contraction in the muscle, your average sarcomere gets longer. So it's a, it's a longitudinal hypertrophy. Whereas something like a bicep curl with bodybuilding, typically what happens is you get more sarcomeres. So your muscle gets bigger. But if you're doing really intense active stretching, um, there's no studies to back me up on this yet because there's not any studying of high intensity active stretching. It's just eccentric training to the maximum. But I do believe that there's definitely some longitudinal hypertrophy there. What muscle groups or areas of the body do you think are most beneficial to start stretching? The biggest one would be the spine. Everybody wants to look at the the hamstrings and the hip flexors. Th- those are those are actually pretty easy. They come pretty easily, but a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting down. And when you're sitting down, your spine doesn't move a lot. 
and you're told your whole life to have this perfect posture so you're stiff all the time so your body just kind of just stiffens up your fascia gets all entangled and hardened and if if you're not moving in the very least it doesn't even have to be stretching moving your spine through a full range of motion flexion extension lateral motion and twisting if you're doing all of that spine stiffness is just not going to be a thing for you so yeah that's what i would say the spine is probably the most underrated thing that i think everybody would benefit from stretching there's a classic quote that goes you're only as old as your spine is flexible what do you think about that one that's a quote by joseph pilates i my first foray into fitness was pilates so um, i'm a comprehensively certified pilates instructor so that kind of hits home for me and a lot of Pilates is centered around mobilizing your spine, getting it moving. And um, we just talked about those neurological gains. Where do they come from? They come from your spine because your spinal cord is that's all that's where all of your nerves come from. So when you move your spine a lot, kind of naturally everything else gets a little bit more flexible too. But I would definitely say that's an accurate statement. With the spine, where should we start? Bending forwards, backwards, sideways, rotation, what, what's the most important? I would think that the biggest one would be some sort of spinal flexion and then some sort of twisting. So uh, most people, when they try and stretch their hamstrings, they feel it in their low back and it's because their back is rounding like a lot. Well, what you could do from a standing position is start with just your head, roll down one bone at a time and really like flex your chest, your core, your hip flexors as you go down. And you're going to feel sensation throughout your entire spine. You'll feel your nerves. It kind of feels like tingly almost. Um, and if you go deep enough down, you'll even feel it get into your hamstrings, into your calves, and then to the bottom of your toes. Because you're basically putting your spinal cord through the longest possible range of motion that your spinal cord, all the nerves could go through. So flexion is super important. And then there's not a lot of twisting in everyday life. So I really think twisting is important as well. What do you think about the whole bending forward is bad for your spine don't do jefferson curls because it's bad for the discs etc yeah that's that's an opinion that a lot of people hold and if if you have a high enough load there's probably a bit of risk but your body can also adapt to that if you wanted to progressively overload to that point there's definitely more compromised positions to be in a flex spine totally could be that but with proper load management it's nothing but healthy for you. So I've injured my back before, but it was never with bending forward. It was always with a twisting while under load, while bending forward, like while throwing something. So as a young person, my spine is obviously really, really like sturdy, but doing that sort of thing was not good. If I had trained in that sort of range with some sort of load with flexion, some sort of load with maybe some extension, some twisting. I don't think that sort of thing would have happened to me. And a big piece of what you just said is progressive overload in all respects. We're not going to treat spinal flexion any differently from any other activity in terms of your dosage and how it increases over time. Yeah, proper load management is probably the biggest thing. And you progressively overload. You start with a lightweight, you get heavier, you get heavier. Um, listen to your body. If you feel pain, you've probably gone too far back off a little bit. It's yeah. it. Yeah. Don't push yourself too hard when you're in a compromised position like that. Would you be able to give me a sales pitch for the benefits of stretching? I mean, the low hanging fruit would be increased range of motion. Everybody knows that one, but increased pain tolerance. We already talked about that. It's not just stretch tolerance. It's actually pain tolerance. So if you really want to increase your pain tolerance, spending time in a painful position, which is basically what stretching is, spending time in a painful position, you get better and you adapt to it. It's kind of like an ice bath where you're sitting there and the most uncomfortable thing you can think about, it increases your pain tolerance or your tolerance for discomfort. So stretching can also reduce um, injuries, but not all kinds of injuries. Um, the, the only one that I've seen evidence of like in actual studies is musculotendinous injuries. So that would be strains, sprains, tears, that sort of thing. An example that comes to mind right away is I can't really remember the last time I sprained my ankle and it's probably due to some ankle stretches that I've done because I've got some pretty freaky flexible ankles. What would you recommend for people with respect to the wrist? So wrist overuse injuries, wrist sprains, how can we make this area more robust, especially for our calisthenics audience? We're doing tons of handstands, etc. Yeah. So in my case, 
increasing the 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 extension and the flexion is good, but it's it's not really going to help in the short term if you already have an existing wrist problem. It's probably actually going to aggravate it. So the first thing that you're going to want to do is is not necessarily avoid it, but you want to avoid it under a lot of load. So for for a lot of people, if you're in a push-up position, so your wrists are extended, it's going to hurt inside that wrist joint. So you can use something to reduce that wrist angle. So you could put something under that. And if you're going to do your push-ups, that's going to help a little bit. Um, if you're doing dips, you can use parallettes, but that's all a, a temporary fix. Your goal is to eventually get back to that full extension under load. Um, and you can do that by gradually getting there. And the other way that I've done, because I've had some wrist pain before, basically strengthening the opposite side. So as a rock climber, I've done a lot of grabbing and gripping, and it used to hurt to do this motion with my wrist. So strengthening my extensors really, really, really helped. So if it's the opposite problem for you, extensing, um, (laughs) extensing, I'm making up words, doesn't matter. Um, Probably do some strengthening in the flex position and it might help. And that is specific to calisthenics people as well because we're crushing grip proficionados as well as uh, rock climbers and we seldom do stuff for the extensors so getting that going would be almost like the tib ant raises for the lower limb uh, yeah i would i would agree with that i think the f- the first thing for me that that sticks out to mind is i learned how to do a muscle up in slow motion and in order to do that you need to use your false grip and that false grip was really, really painful for me for a while. So really working on those extensors is what helped helped it for me. I think many people will have some type of issues if they only do false grip to improve false grip. As you said, you have to work on the surrounding tissues that absorb forces, distribute forces. So there's not as much uh, joint strain as well. Yeah. For false grip specifically, it's it's kind of a difficult position because there's also a lot of stretch that has to happen through those extensors. And you can just imagine if you grip all your fingers and you keep them in place and then try and go to that false grip position, you can't really go that far without feeling huge stretch all the way through there. So it's it's good to get some strengthening as well as stretching through there because stretching one thing 24 seven, it's, it's like doing just the passive stretches all the time. You need to have a bit of a balance. What would you say is better for flexibility, strengthening or stretching? This is kind of a, a dual, a dual edged weapon here because strength training specifically, if you look at the studies, it's exactly and precisely as effective as static stretching is at increasing your range of motion. The only problem is is when you're trying to get into extreme ranges and you have like a heavy load on your back or you're doing some heavy stuff, it can be quite dangerous. Um, so if you're using strength training to increase your range of motion, that's great. Um, just use caution when, like for instance, Jefferson curls. You need to start from a very, very low intensity and work your way up so that your body has time to adapt to it. I'd also add to that by saying the weight or resistance you use should permit not restrict your range of motion. What I mean by that is if you're lifting heavy weights close to your 1RM, inherently you're not going to be as inclined to use your maximum range of motion. So your body will have this kind of protective mechanism to try and prevent you from causing harm to yourself. Whereas if your main goal is flexibility, increasing range of motion, using a weight which is challenging allows you to push yourself to that end range will expand your range but also help you get strong in that range too it also lets you take advantage of stretch mediated hypertrophy which is super super underrated in in the field of hypertrophy that's come out a lot more in recent times and the example we can give the audience is just say you're doing a row and often on the internet people are saying you got to use Proper technique, full range of motion, elbows have got to go all the way back, full retraction, and that's great. Most of your reps should look like that. But in the interest of hypertrophy, the lats specifically are going to be overloaded the most at that deep stretch. So if you were to stop your set when you can only go towards that like technical failure, you're still leaving so much growth from stretch-mediated hypertrophy by just like eking out 
an extra few stretch reps. Yeah, there's, there's fun ways to do all sorts of full range of motion stuff. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. For someone that's excited by this conversation, they're going, okay, I want to really focus on flexibility. My workouts now are going to be entirely flexibility based. What are the principles you would recommend from start to end of a workout in terms of how to structure a session for flexibility? That's that's really good. So if you're all in and you're doing flexibility specific workouts, number one recommendation is warm up. And that's literally just increase your body temperature. You could do it in a sauna, a hot shower. You could go for a quick little run or you could do the stretches that you're going to do as long as they're active and you do them at a lower intensity first. So you're literally just bringing warmth to the area. I like to start with the active stretches because it's almost like a continuation of the warm up. Like let's say we're doing a front split workout. So we're working on our front splits. You can go almost as far out in your front splits as possible and kind of sink down into it and flex your hamstring and flex your quad and your hip flexor. And you're really at a full stretch and you're flexing. You're doing it for your 30 seconds or however many sets you're going to do. And then right after that, I would go into the static stuff. And you'll find that after doing all of the active stuff first, going into the static stuff, you're going to find that you go pain-free into a much deeper range of motion and it's much safer that way as well. Okay. So doing more of the dynamic stuff followed by the static. Is there any room for combining both? Because I've seen a common protocol for flexibility is 10 reps plus a 10 to 30 second hold on the last one. Could you speak to the benefits of that? Yeah, you you absolutely could combine them. Like the, the biggest example would be PNF stretching, uh, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, just a fancy way of saying flexing your muscles. You could hold a stretch, which is a static, so it's not moving, and you're in a relaxed position for 10 seconds. And then for 10 seconds, you could flex. And then for another 10 seconds, sink a little deeper and then relax. Or you could do something that's more on the dynamic side of things, like the ATG split squat. I just call it a deep split squat, but everybody knows that as the ATG split squat, where you have one leg forward and you sink all the way down and you're just doing your reps. And over time, as you get more reps, you're going to find you go to a little bit of a deeper range of motion by the time you get to your 15th, 16th rep. What do people get wrong about flexibility? Uh, a lot of people think that it's either going to increase your chance of injury, so they avoid it altogether or they think that um that it needs to be done right before you work out and it's 10 seconds of stretch but if you just treat it like a workout or incorporate it into your workout you're already going to be at a much better position than most people are what about the people that are hesitant thinking i've always been stiff i've always been inflexible is there hope it's, it's funny there's studies on older people who try flexibility for the first time and the older you get, the more stiff you get just in general. Um, and it seems to show that the more stiff you are, the faster you're going to gain flexibility if you do it right. So the stiffer you are, the faster you're going to gain flexibility than everybody else. Even if it's like from a tiny range of motion to an average range of motion, that's going to happen much faster than it will for people who are not stiff. It just takes a little bit of consistency. That's very uplifting to hear because we can see that everywhere with nutrition. If you're someone who's quite overweight, you've got a lot of fat to lose. It'll be easier with your nutritional changes to lose that fat compared to someone who's very lean. Same thing for strength. So it's nice to hear that for flexibility because I feel it's a part of fitness where it's still a bit of a mystery for the average person. It's like, Ooh, do you have to have been a gymnast? Do you have to have stretched since you were a child to be flexible? There's a lot of these kind of reasons why we can't do it instead of finding reasons why we should. Yeah, the biggest question I get online is, were you always flexible? And I always tell people that in high school, I was playing basketball. It was hard for me to touch my toes. I could like just barely touch my toes or maybe I couldn't quite, but I know in high school, it was a struggle to just touch my toes. And I didn't start actually flexibility training till I was 20. And I'm 24 now, but I would say it took two years to get above average flexibility. And that was like with really, really inconsistent, terrible strategies. So th there's a lot of gains to be had if you just try. 
What is your protocol for touching your toes? Because that is the most Googled term when it comes to flexibility. And it's such a good marker of improving your stretching journey. So a lot of people are really, really surprised. Like let's say somebody is one inch away from touching their toes. If they did just a little bit of nerve flossing, 30 seconds of it, that person who's one inch away is probably going to be able to touch their toes. So you could get an immediate effect like that, but it's temporary. You'll go back to your normal stiffness, but you could immediately see results like that if you wanted to see if it's possible just to give yourself some motivation. And with that, again, you just do exactly what you're going to do, reach toward your toes, and you do it for 10 sets a week. Another strategy you can employ is you can flatten your back all the way out, keep it flat and flat, and then try and touch your toes. You'll notice that you'll feel a much, much deeper stretch, and you might even feel some tingling because the nerves get involved a little bit. And if you do that, you're going to gain a lot more flexibility a lot more quicker. Can you explain what nerve flossing is using that forward bending example and how to go about nerve flossing? So a really good example of something that's similar to a nerve floss would be um, elephant walks. So you're basically reaching down as far forward as possible. You can either do it with a flat or a rounded over back. You bend one knee while the other one is straight, and then you switch sides and you would keep doing that. What you're doing is you're pulling your nerves from one direction and then you're pulling them from the other direction. Another way you can do it is let's say you're sitting down Your legs are straight out in front of you and you pull your toes toward you and you look up to the ceiling. So if you think that there's a string attached to the base of your skull and it's going around the outside of your body and down your legs to the very tip of your toe, you're pulling on that string to lift your head up to the ceiling and then you lower your head down and then point your toes. So what nerve flossing is, is you're pulling one end of the string and then the other. So you're quite literally getting your nerve and you're flossing it through all your muscles, your tendons, your ligaments, and all the other tissues in your... Well explained. So using nerve flossing helps to, in a sense, desensitize your your body to that range of motion, which would allow you to spend some time in that range of motion and gain flexibility. Correct. Yeah. So I should have mentioned this with the hamstring flexibility one. If you do a little bit of nerve flossing and then you do your hamstring flexibility workout, you're going to get so much more out of it than you would otherwise. So for, for a new beginner, that is. Now, anyone that has done serious stretching and flexibility gets sore. Should we stretch while we're sore? You absolutely can stretch while you're sore. It's not going to help with your soreness. It probably will make you more sore. But there's nothing telling you that not to stretch when you're sore. The only thing that I would possibly avoid is the active stretches. As I said earlier, the intensity can hinder your recovery. So if you're focusing on recovery and you still want to gain some flexibility, it's totally okay to static stretch and passively stretch. Perfect. And an example to bring this home would be intensity is all relative. So if you're someone at the gym who's squatting, you can do 100 kilos and that is your stimulus that fatigues you if you go the next day and did bodyweight squats that's not really going to fatigue you stress you out or make you sore the same thing needs to be said for stretching and flexibility so if you're one of your sessions a week where you're working towards doing 10 sets for your hamstrings is you do three sets of jefferson curls with 10 kilos and you use a rep range and a hold time that challenges you you're sore the next day If you go and just do some elephant walks or just some gentle static stretching where you're just bending down with body weight, that's probably not going to cause you issues. So it is all relative with stretching as well. And what can cause you more soreness, i.e. loaded stretching versus just body weight movements needs to be factored in as well. Yeah, it's, that's correct. And especially it's, it's the same thing as working out. If you just, think about stretching as a different form of working out than you're used to, then you're golden. Why does the average person dislike stretching? It's incredibly painful if you're doing it correctly. It's highly, highly uncomfortable. It's the same reason why everybody hates ice baths. Even if you've been doing ice baths for years, I haven't met a single person that just enjoys being in that 
really, really uncomfortable state. That that I probably am going to have to change that statement if I meet Wim Hof because he's he's a, just a different breed. But um, it's very, very uncomfortable, and it's really hard to come to terms with. Hey, I have to be very, very uncomfortable for thirty full seconds, which feels like an eternity. If if you've never done stretching before, there's this concept with flexibility where you've got short versus tight muscles. Let's use the glutes as an example. So just say you feel like your glutes are very tight and no matter what you do with stretching, you can't increase the range of motion. Whereas if you were to strengthen those muscles, you would increase your range of motion. Is there any truth to this uh, short versus tight muscles? It's a really interesting topic because you can be very, very flexible and be very, very tight at the same time because tightness is, um, I believe, uh, muscle tonality is what they call it, where it's when, when you're resting, your muscle still has a bit of activity going on. So for your posture muscles, like your quadratus lumborum that holds up your spine, there's typically going to be a lot more activity in that even when you're not doing anything just because it holds up your spine. That's totally fine. But that means that muscle is inherently going to be a little bit stiffer. So even if you have a very, very flexible spine, it can be stiff, and sometimes that's uncomfortable. Um, the best way to get rid of stiffness as a quality or muscle tonality to reduce that muscle tonality is really, really high-intensity contractions. So it wouldn't even be stretching. So um, it doesn't even have to be a full range of motion. You can think of um, if you've been sitting in a chair for a very, very long time, and you stretch, you are definitely stretching the front of your body, but what you're really doing is you're really contracting those back muscles very, very, very intensely, and it's because they've gotten stiff over time, and you can apply that to any muscle in your body that's been stiff. And combining that with active stretching with or without weights, I feel is going to take care of those short and tight areas because they're elongating and getting stronger. Definitely. Cracking of joints, popping, grinding, it's something that most of us experience. Should we be worried about this? So I, I think the term is called crepitus. I, I looked into this myself because I was really, really curious about this, especially in high school, because my knees pop all the time, especially when I go to a full range of motion. If, as long as you're not experiencing any pain, there shouldn't be any problem. Um, if you're post-op and you're after a surgery, like in your rotator cuff or in your knee or something like that, and you're trying to work through a full range of motion, typically, again, there's going to be a lot of crepitus, a lot of that popping and grinding. As long as there's no pain, there's no problem. So I agree with what you said 100% because if someone is healthy and they don't have those predisposing conditions and they hear noise, it can be almost worse if you hear information saying you're doing harm to your body it's dangerous it can be a nocebo effect where you get afraid of movement which is not healthy so with what you said if you're getting some popping cracking it's not painful you don't have any issues don't fear it because your body is robust healthy and there's all these other structures taking over and a little bit of sound some moving of synovial fluid it's it's nothing to be worried about Definitely nothing to be worried about. Every time I go to a deep squat, it happens. If you see my short little videos, you'll see me go down to a deep squat. Oftentimes, you'll hear like the little pop, pop, and they get picked up in the mic. It's totally normal. How important is breathing when it comes to stretching and flexibility? When you're first starting, I would say that breathing is probably the most important thing about stretching because it's really, really going to bring your heart rate down. It's going to get some of that adrenaline to stop a little bit because it's going to be really, really uncomfortable holding a stretch, especially for 30 seconds at a time. So what I do is I breathe in through my nose and I breathe out through my mouth. That's just how I relax as much as possible. And I try to exhale for more than I inhale. It, it just helps me relax that way. So for a beginner, I would say that breathing is really, really important. For somebody who's more advanced, it's maybe less important, but it's, it's very healthy for you. So breathe <laughs> if anything it helps with the mindfulness as well because if people are there holding their breath they get very rigid stiff and they don't allow themselves to yield into the position so by breathing in that relaxed natural way as you've just described you'll be able to go further but you also want to be sure that you're breathing with a level of tension 
that allows you to have some positional control. If you go super yoga, zen, calm, and just completely flop down, especially with loaded stretching, probably not the best idea. Yeah, it's, a lot of people flop down, I would say. When, every time you're doing stretching and you incorporate a high-speed element, there's a, there's a lot of risk involved. So if, if you're breathing and you're intentionally going slow and you're focused, that's not going to happen to you. But yeah, definitely uh, breathing helps. Why does everyone want to fix anterior pelvic tilt? <laughs> oh man, the, the Kim Kardashian. Uh, so the, the anterior pelvic tilt, if you don't know what that is, it's when your butt sticks out and you have a really deep curve in your lower back. It's pretty normal in a lot of people having an excessive curve, I would say. Uh, but there always is going to be some sort of curve unless you have a genetic mutation or some some sort of other thing that that means that your low back is going to be curved, scoliosis or, or otherwise. But there's there's no reason to fix anterior pelvic tilt. I, I don't know why everybody is so obsessed with it, but everybody has it. So why why make a big deal out of it? I feel that a lot of this is coming from health professionals, be it physiotherapists, osteos that consult with people. And through an assessment, you relay your observation to the patient. And a really easy remark to tell someone is they've got an anterior pelvic tilt. And I think that this has just created this perfect storm of people saying, oh, I've got anterior pelvic tilt. Yeah, I could make a video tomorrow about anterior pelvic tilt and it would go super viral because everybody thinks that they have this insane anterior pelvic tilt because they have a low back curve and they think it's really bad for them and it causes back pain. But anterior pelvic tilt and back pain, they can happen at the same time, sure, but they're it's it's not correlated. They're they're usually two separate issues. So an issue is a weird term because anterior pelvic tilt is probably not an issue in most cases. Can you speak about the idea of a perfect posture and that we should be balanced and symmetrical in all of our joints? One of the biggest things that I had to unlearn because I was my first foray into, into fitness was Pilates. One of the biggest things I had to unlearn was this perfect posture all the time. No rib flare, no anterior pelvic tilt. Don't let, jut your chin out. There, there's definitely value to having a really good posture, feeling as tall as possible, even, even if it's just psychological. There, there's great benefits to posture when you're lifting heavy because that's the most structurally stiff that you can get your body so you're least likely to injure yourself. But obsessing over posture is, is not going to really get you anywhere. It's just going to make your spine stiff and with stiffness usually comes discomfort. So I, w I wouldn't say obsess over posture. Your best posture is your next posture, whether it's curved forward, you're up, you're around. Just be human. It's human to, to move. So move. How about technique when it comes to exercises? We know all of us have heard there's a perfect way to squat. There's a perfect way to deadlift. You name the exercise. Someone has written, do this, don't do that. Is there a perfect way, a perfect technique to do any exercise? With proper load management, I would argue that there is zero wrong exercises. Like you could put my ankles in the most compromised position possible. And as long as I have resistance bands pulling me off of the ground and there's almost no weight on my ankles, it's totally fine. But I've also worked up to the point that I can stand on the side of my ankles with all of my body weight. I could probably hold some dumbbells while I did that and I'd be totally fine. Um, it looks like a very terrifying, scary exercise, but I wouldn't say that it's bad for you per se. When it comes to something like a deadlift, there's more optimal form for lifting the most amount of weight if that's your goal. There's more optimal form for not getting injured if you're wanting to lift your maximum weight, 100% of what you can lift. You should probably have a straighter spine and create some stiffness uh, via intra-abdominal pressure, but there's not really a wrong way of doing an exercise as long as there's proper load management. The complexity of this is that we're all individuals. We've got different limb lengths, muscle insertions, preferences for how we like to rotate ourselves during a certain exercise. And the biggest takeaway is just finding the movement pattern that is the most comfortable and strong for your body. If that is safe, then it's almost arbitrary what standards are being set I think that if you're just training for general health, fitness, longevity, 
you're a bit more fortunate because you're not a prisoner to these standards if you're competing in, say, powerlifting or something like that. We don't have to do it exactly that one specific way. There's there's many different ways of training. So Is foam rolling or getting a deep tissue massage useful for flexibility? For flexibility, I wouldn't say it's useful. Um, it's not really going to increase your range of motion in my experience, but I, I haven't done any deep research into, into foam rolling or deep tissue massage. I would say there is a benefit to muscle stiffness um, for, for deep massage, but it's only a very, very temporary benefit. Um, you're, once you've done like a lot of foam rolling, your, your muscle stiffness goes a lot lower. Um, your muscle becomes a lot stiffer, but it goes back to baseline after five, 10 minutes or so like that. Um, so the, the benefit to doing foam rolling would be if you have a really, really, really high muscle tone, you're really, really stiff and you do it before you lift, or let's say you have a cramping issue and you're struggling with a cramp right now. Great. Massage it. It'll get rid of that stiffness. And that's the key point you just said. It has to be done immediately after it's been done in that acute phase of applying the foam rolling or massage. You can't get a massage on Friday and then do a training session on Sunday and expect the flexibility gains to have lasted that long or the potential to gain flexibility through the reduced stiffness. Yeah, yeah, I agree fully. Low back pain. There's an 80% prevalence of low back pain, meaning at some point, in one's life, they will experience back pain. 80% of people will. What would be your formula for mitigating this from happening? That is a fantastic question. I, I will never consider myself a pain guru or even a back pain guru, but I have injured my back before. I, I never got it diagnosed. I have a suspicion that it was probably a herniation of my lower back. Um, it was really intense. I used to work at FedEx and I was like lifting a couch by myself, didn't want to ask for help. I did this huge twisting motion and pop goes the back and I was in pain for a very, very, very long time. It took about six months to get to a point where I could finally like exercise again. Um, if I had a formula to get out of back, low back pain specifically, it would be first, the first step, it just happened, avoid the movement that hurts, but that's only, only temporary. So for instance, if, if you extending your spine hurts in the moment, maybe don't extend your spine right away. Then the first step is to start increasing the range of motion, zero load, laying on your back, increase the range of motion, flexion, extension, all the kinds of movements that you can do. So you're starting to mobilize the area and then you can start bringing load into it and experimenting with it and you have to relearn how to brace your core. That's one thing that I really had to learn again was how to brace my core. That doesn't mean that you have to brace your core all the time, but when you lift heavy stuff, learn how to brace your core. And then once you're at that point, you've gained a little bit of range of motion, you've built up some strength, then you can start experimenting again. And once you can start experimenting again, the only thing you have to avoid is pain. So if your body is giving you pain signals, maybe you should avoid that movement for now or bring it down to a lower intensity. Like we were saying earlier, I don't personally believe there is such thing as a wrong or bad exercise with proper load management. It's a very common story when I used to work as a physio in the clinic. What you just described was almost word for word the same situation. People got back pain. It's I'm moving house and I was tired and get much sleep the previous night. It was a couple hours in. I was bending over, pick up a box, twist, there it goes. There's probably something to say with what you've been recommending in this podcast about training awkward movements because at the gym, we're doing things in very planar directions, one or the other, but those combination type of movements potentially could be the saving grace for strengthening up the, the spine and surrounding areas too. Yeah, spinal extension has always been my weakest point. I'm very, very bad at doing a back bridge, but I've gotten so much better at it. And it's literally just taken, like you can see the journey through my videos where there was no back bends ever. And it was because I was too close to that injury that I had. But I've gotten to the point now where I'm actually starting to rebuild that capacity, number one. And number two, I'm actually getting into deadlifting again. And my max but way back when was like not even 200 pounds. It was pretty light. Um, after the injury, it was nothing. 
Got back from the injury. It was 235. Then it was 245. And now I'm at 255. So I'm building my way up. My goal is to show people that you can be strong and you can be flexible. And why not throw in that I've had a back injury in the past? So <laughs> it's possible. That's going to make for a, a nice story to really sell the world of flexibility. Why is there a misconception that you can't be strong and flexible? I, I, I'm not sure because... Oh, that's the biggest thing that people people ask me, I would say, in, in gym culture specifically, is they, they think that stretching is going to make them weak. But it, it doesn't make you weak. It gives you the potential to be strong in a longer range of motion. That's what it does. You're, the longest possible range of motion that you your body can do is going to be a lot harder to do, so you're going to lift a lot less weight. But that's fine. If you're going for a max... Go to the standard, whatever the arbitrary standard is for that lift, and you'll see like a barbell bench press, touch your chest and go up. What you can do is you can use dumbbells and you can go almost behind your chest and get an even deeper range of motion. You can get really, really strong with that deep range of motion and your chest is going to be very, very flexible. So I, I think you can definitely have those two capacities of being strong and flexible at the same time. I feel like you hit the nail on the head when you said range of motion and intensity. The average gym culture, gym person often has an ego, wants to lift as heavy as possible. And that is usually using a range of motion that's not complete through the very nature of it being difficult. But I feel with the progression of the fitness industry, even with bodybuilding, we're learning so much more about the benefit of full range for muscle growth. And if people combine the resistance training through a full range of motion, they're going to get strong and flexible if they're training within their means. It's very, very true. Couldn't have said it better myself. David, pleasure chatting to you, mate. Where can people learn more about your work? Yeah, you can just Google Movement by David or Stay Flexi. If you know me as the Stay Flexi guy, I'm on any platform out there. So there you go. Awesome. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.